Hello, and welcome to the Leader Talks at Axiom podcast. This is a podcast designed to help all of us understand Axiom's leader expectations better. I'm Amy Elrod. I look after talent development for Axiom, and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode. In today's discussion, we continue looking at lead with emotional intelligence, and we specifically focus on the VP and above competencies of negotiating and influence. Now, if you're thinking, well, I'm not a VP or above, and I don't negotiate million-dollar deals. I guess I should probably just go ahead and turn off this podcast right now. Wait, please don't do that. Hang with us, and what you'll hear is that all of us are negotiating. We negotiate with our teams. We negotiate with our leaders. We negotiate with other teams at Axiom, with our clients, with teams across the IPG network. We're all negotiating in our roles. We also negotiate uh, with our people outside of work. I know that I am always negotiating with my son about his chores and I'm usually on the losing end of that. So maybe I'll learn some things that will help me with that as well. When we think about negotiating with emotional intelligence, it means that we're really trying to get to win-win outcomes. We're not trying to make the other person or the other team lose. We're really trying to get to a point where we both get what we need out of the interaction. This means that you're going to need to use your empathy. You're going to need to think about it from their perspective. What do they really need? How can I help them get what they need while at the same time getting what I need as well? So using that empathy to to get to that win-win outcome. We should be looking to build the trust in the relationship throughout that negotiating process and not hurt the trust in the relationship. In this discussion, we'll also look at influence. Influence means using your influence to to get others to your way of thinking, to get them to come around to your ideas. And so with this influence, you might think, well, I'm not a leader, so I don't really have influence. We all are influencing every day as well. I want you to think about your team and think about how your behaviors, your attitudes, your your mindset influences them. And think about, is that a positive influence where you're using that influence to help all of us work at our best and and work together productively? Or is your influence maybe not what it needs to be? We will have the opportunity to learn from a couple of leaders on this topic. And in this discussion today, we're going to hear from Jim Bossert, who is a VP in financial services. And he looks after several accounts in that industry. We'll also hear from Bhavna Gadanya. And Bhavna has recently moved to a new role on the partnership team at Axiom, but she spent several years in what I call procurement. I think their official title is Global Vendor Services, but they're the team that makes sure that we're not paying too much for our hardware or our software. So obviously a lot of negotiating going on there. Hope you'll enjoy hearing from both Jim and Bhavna and that you'll learn some things to help you negotiate skillfully and be the great influence that you need to be on your team. Welcome, Jim and Bhavna, to the Leader Talks at Axiom podcast. How are you? Doing well. Thank you, Amy. Great. Great to be here. Good. So glad to have you both. Well, today we are going to be diving in, thinking about emotional intelligence, and specifically thinking about negotiations. But before we do that, we want to learn a little bit about you. Bhavna, would you mind to tell us a little bit about your career journey, what got you here, and what you're doing today? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, today I'm a Senior Director of Strategic Partnerships working for Axiom's uh, Chief Strategy Officer. Prior to this, I spent four years working for the CIO in operations. So managing some technical partnerships, more R&D focus, uh, ran the sourcing and the global vendor services organization. And then most recently stood up a FinOps organization. But, but before Axiom, I come from a partnership world, work for a mobile mm. company, and then uh, M&A and partnerships at Dell. But at my core, I come from an engineering product background and have had various, various roles in large management consulting companies um, uh, throughout my career. Okay, good, Jim. So I am vice president of delivery within financial services over the FS1 group. And my team and I support 45 financial services accounts. I just wow. celebrated my 24th year anniversary here at Axiom, which is happy anniversary. It's a testament to how great this company is. Uh, in, in terms of my background, my undergraduate degree in computer science, uh, I earned a master's in uh, finance from DePaul University while I was working. When I came out of school, I was an assembly programmer on the mainframe. So that me a little bit. <laughs> just, I mean, just a little bit. Yeah, I did that for a few years. <laughs> Yeah, you said, ooh. Um, so I did that for a few years, and then I kind of discovered relational databases. So I was a database administrator under Oracle 7.0, for those of you who know Oracle. And I did that for a few years and then moved into data warehousing. So I was at Amico Oil Company, and then I went to the Quaker Oats Company. I was in data warehousing for a few years, and I discovered Axiom. So I moved over to Axiom in 97, and I came over as an industry solutions architect. And so I was a techie until 2004, when Holly Marr and Jake Calloway, if some of you know who, who those two are, uh, they approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in a leadership role. And of course, I had that huge struggle with whether or not I should, should go for it and lose my tech skills. As we know, I made the decision. I didn't look back and uh, I love what I do. Okay, well, since we are focusing on lead with emotional intelligence, I'd love to start by just hearing from both of you why this is so important. Jim, I'll let you go first on this one. Absolutely. So emotional intelligence, critical, critical skill. I would say it, it only takes a backseat to integrity, integrity being mm -hmm. basically the non-negotiable in leadership, yes, of course. For sure. Emotional intelligence is so important because everything we do on a day-to-day -day basis as leaders, we're problem solving, we're dealing with people, we're dealing with clients, we're dealing with associates, and the ability to be able to control your emotions, to come in, kind of assess the situation, and help to ultimately control it and drive it towards a positive outcome is so important to be able to do that. And so the team really looks to us to be kind of that, that rock. And, and I don't yeah. mean like, you know, Sheldon on um, Big Bang Theory type, you know, <laughs> where you wouldn't know what to do if you tripped over it, but just, just consistent and predictable um, and somebody that the team can really look to, to help kind of shepherd them and the client through some, what can be sometimes some really, really tough situations. Yeah. So you can have emotions, you can feel emotions. You don't have to be a robot, but we also do need to remember to keep those in check. Good. Bhavna, what would you add? Yeah, definitely echo um, Jim's point. Um, integrity is super, super critical. Um, yeah. But it, you know, in general, emotional intelligence, I think it's critical for all leaders because we've learned that we're not, we're not all just cogs in a machine. And the way to get the best out of people is to connect with them. Um, for negotiations as leaders, I think there's a bit more of a tactical answer. Um, I call it tactical empathy. 
Um, mm. This really is a bedrock of any negotiation approach, like demonstrating that understanding of the other side's position and mindset in any scenario is really where you're going to build that rapport, you're going to gain that trust. And this goes to associates, vendors, partners, even at home. Gaining uh, an understanding of others reduces those misconceptions. And then when it comes to negotiations, empathy helps you see what the other side values. And honestly, this can be a weapon. Tactical empathy. Good. Another one is authenticity. You know, being authentic is so, so mm-hmm. important. I think empathy and authenticity is being so, so critical. You know, people can tell when, you, when you're really being authentic and you're connecting with them. And uh, it's just a really critical skill to have. Yeah, I love what both of you are saying. Integrity, absolutely the foundation of any relationship that we have. But being authentic, being your real self, people can tell when you're not being your real self. So being authentic and then having that empathy which Bhavna, I've never really heard it phrased tactical empathy before, but I guess going into negotiations, this can, this can be helpful. Let's dive in a little bit deeper on negotiations. So I would love to hear about some of those tough negotiation situations that you've been in. And we specifically invited both of you because I know, Jim, you have led some pretty, uh, pretty tough negotiations with those 45 clients that you mentioned are under your purview. And then Bobna, I know, of course, in thinking about building those strategic partnerships outside of Axiom, a lot of, a lot of negotiation goes into that. Um, so would, would, let's start with Bobna. Would you mind to take us mm-hmm. through some of those tough negotiations that you've been through and how you've uh, managed yourself through those? Yeah, and I feel like we've gone through negotiations just throughout life. I don't yes. want to sound so cliche, but <laughs> negotiating as kids, you know, with teenagers, with my teenagers, whether at home or work, we're negotiating constantly. Yeah. At work, I'm typically negotiating at least five to seven times per day, um, wow. every day during the week. And I've, what I've really learned throughout my career is great negotiations is about great collaboration. Mm. Um, there's a trust-based influence. And, and sometimes I find that you're negotiating with partners or vendors. Sometimes I'm negotiating with my own team um, in, internally as well. Um, so as an example um, of a tough negotiation situation, in this one case, an executive leader top, 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 was, was dead set on a particular tech from a specific vendor um, about to be partner. And in some situations, um, regardless of your role, you can become blinded by what you want Mm. and it can get emotional. Um, And my job is to keep the blood out of it. So I'm in a position (laughs) you don't want to be in where I'm negotiating with both sides where I don't have control for a while and and, and even on my side. So so what I do is I I seek to influence and, Mm. and how does this leader internally particularly see the world? Um, how do they think? How do they process information? And how can I collaborate with this person to help them see that there are more options? In this particular case, I knew this leader was really data driven. So I work with my team. We put together a bulletproof use case argument. It was backed by analytical data. I mean, we geeked out on this. And with some patience and elbow grease, it all worked out were able to show other options. And in fact, we were able to sway and influence the decision that was in um, 
that had the best outcome for both. That's so good. Really understanding how do I need to position this to this person? So coming to them with data made sense in this particular case, maybe talking to someone else, if you appealed more to the emotional side of it, that would have made sense. So really understanding the audience that you're dealing with. Good. I'm really collaborating Mm -hmm. the whole time. Yeah. Jim, what about you? So there's one that really stands out in my mind and you, Amy, probably know which one it is because we've talked about it in your conflict management class a couple of times. So we have a large financial services client, and this is going back several years where we had a five-year deal, five-year contract, and we were coming up on year five. We were actually, we were at year four. So usually about a year ahead of time, we'll start to get ready for negotiations. So on this client, uh, the client managing director at Axiom here and I, very collaborative, you know, working together to get prepared. We had a new client executive come in at the client, the person that owns the overall relationship and is responsible for it. So this person came in and we had a quarterly business review with them. So we went out there to talk to him. And the second words out of his mouth were the two key stakeholders that you guys have a great relationship with, I've removed from the account. So these are people that we had worked with for years and had a really solid relationship. And this guy said, hey, I I pulled them off the account because I wanted to get an objective view of this relationship. Oh, wow. Well, by the way, we feel that we can do, we can perform the services that you provide for 90% less than you charge us and we could build it within a year. So that's kind of where negotiations got started. No we pressure started. is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, you know, the client managing director and myself kind of looked at each other and I thought, oh, wow. So this is how it's going to be, you know? Um, and we don't have time to talk about all the details on the call here, but it was about a year and a half actually of negotiations. Uh, extremely trying, I guess I would say, but it, it worked out really well. We had senior leadership support within Axiom from day one, which was so, so important and a lesson that I've learned over time, how important that is to keep our senior leadership informed and have their buy-in and support for what you're you're doing within the negotiation itself. And then just really being patient Mm. and and really understanding what the client wants and why they want it is is so, so important to landing in a good place. So so we did land in a good place. We landed a three-year, $51 million deal and and the rest is history there. So that was was a tough one. I would say this is a pretty good place that you landed. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I heard you mention patience. I heard you mentioned mentioned having the support from leadership. And Bhavna, you mentioned collaboration. Can we hear from both of you, what are the top two to three things you think leaders or anyone should keep in mind when negotiating? Jim, want to go first on that one? Absolutely. I meant, uh, alluded to it, I guess I'd say earlier, but really focusing on what both parties want. You know, mm-hmm. it's tempting to really focus on what you want, which is great. You yes. Know, you want to win, win, great. But if, if both parties aren't, aren't happy with the end result, you're starting off on a really bad foot. You really are. You want, you want both parties to feel good about it. That's really important. In prep, 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 prep. And when you think you're ready to go, prep some more. You know, extremely, prep, prep. Yeah. extremely, extremely important and listen more than you talk. I've learned that over the years, for sure. My tendency was always to just talk, talk, talk and talk about what I wanted as opposed to really listening. The more the client talks, the more others talk, the more you learn and the more you learn, the more informed decisions you can make. That can be really hard to remember in the moment because when we're, when we think about negotiating, a lot of times we might think we have to come in strong and get all of our points out 
But you make a really good point in that the more you're listening, the more you are learning about what's truly important to them. As they're talking, you you might realize something that, hey, well, we can't give on this, but what they're saying is they really want this other thing and we can give on that. So sometimes it's hard to remember that in the moment, but truly important in all communication, really trying to listen more than we talk for sure. Bhavna, what about you? What would you add? Yeah, no, I I think that's a great point. Um, A couple of things that I I always share with my team as well, like, remember, this isn't, this isn't a fight um, to your earlier point, Amy, it's not even a wrestling match, right? Tell people that (laughs) negotiating in business is like, I I use a dance analogy, like Mm -hmm. plan your dance move and, and do it with grace and with elegance, right? Because you are representing your company, your brand, you know, you're there marketing to them. But, you know, do this negotiation with rhythm, um, mm. whether it's on a dance floor or at a business table and, and making making sure it's collaborative. So people want to dance with you um, and you do that with what Jim shared earlier with listening as well. Um, we spoke about it a little bit earlier, but tactical empathy, like building that trust influence, um, gain an understanding and awareness of the other side's point of view, and then using that to create a positive environment. Um, which a lot of people don't associate with negotiating, or, or, you know, you almost kind of go to that sales car analogy, but getting a good understanding of their emotions and listening, um, they're more likely to share useful information mm-hmm. that you can find valuable. So you end up getting a better deal. And then, and then last, but certainly not least, number three is, it's not about being confrontational. The main ingredient in this recipe to keep in mind is is planning when you negotiate Mm. you won't you won't bake a cake right without knowing the ingredients um same analogy with negotiation it's critical because there's no time for improv before Mm. arriving at the bargaining table spend a significant amount of time identifying the best alternative to negotiated agreement in fact think about the worst alternative to a negotiated agreement and then think about the zone where you want to to play in where you want to negotiate you know, when I tell my team, I'm like, okay, let's, let's, let's do this dance. Let's find this zone. We're in it together, but then always be prepared to have, uh, to walk away. Right. Mm. You, you could, you could be called out. You could be called out if you're bluffing. So be prepared to walk <laughs> away, you know, practice your walk away strut. Yes. Queen, right. Ready, <laughs> ready to roll. Um, but, but, but I find that those skills will help you time and time again. I love the dance analogy because I do love to dance. That really resonates with me. Uh, But just like two dancers, if they're going to be on Dancing with the Stars, for example, they're not going to show up and not have practiced this dance at all, right? They're going to know the choreography. They're going to have a plan in place. Both of you talked about preparation, planning. This is not a time for improv. This is not a time to wing it. This is a time to really understand what can we give? What can we not give? What do we think their position is going to be and work together to come to a deal that, that both, both dance parties can, can agree to nice. Okay. Well, anything else to add on negotiations before we pivot a little bit to influence? I'll add one thing. I would say, don't be afraid uh, to let there be a little bit of a gap in communication from, from, when you're talking in person or even over time. You know, what I would always tend to do earlier on is just want to fill, fill, fill the, the time. Uh, and it's okay to just kind of let that, I guess, 
pregnant pause, be out there and just wait, you know, and wait, wait for the other person to kind of talk and, and, uh, you know, done right. It can really, it can really be a useful tool. So That's a good point. Learn. Silence is golden. Yes. And it's really uncomfortable. We've yeah. all been there, right? You're just waiting. Yes. You're almost like, who's going to blink first? And if you're patient <laughs> enough and make it awkward enough, usually the other person will blink. And, and the reason I think it's valuable is because ultimately you'll end up getting more information, right? And the more information yeah. you have, the, the better decisions you can make and ultimately the better deal that you'll end up landing on. So. Uh, silence is golden, but it is really mm -hmm. hard. <laughs> it's tough. Well, and I think that's something we can also apply even in coaching and feedback situations on our team, that if you give a little bit of space, people are likely to open up to you a little bit more. And I think we're always quick to jump in to fill the space, or certainly I'm guilty of that, that any little tiny bit of awkwardness, I want to jump in and make everybody feel better, but you're right give that pause, that's going to maybe give people the courage that they need to share their thoughts, or maybe to your point, they won't be able to withstand the awkwardness and they'll talk first in negotiations. But, um, but it, it is hard to do, but I think it is certainly a very, uh, very helpful tool in those negotiations. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. Let's switch a little bit and think about influence. We know that when you are negotiating, you are influencing others. You might be influencing the people that you're collaborating with. You might be influencing up to senior leadership, as you spoke about, Bhavna. But we also, as leaders, influence on our teams. I'd love to switch our focus from pure negotiations to how do you lead with influence on your team? And Bhavna, I'll let you go first on that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a leader, I want to empower my team, not not just lead them around by the nose and not coerce <laughs> them, right? Yes. Um, the goal is to influence, to help them to see the world that we as a company want to exist, as we want to see as part of the deal exists, like where they have ownership um, and, and a stake in, in the deal. Um, and that I, I believe that deeply because I think that creates their own influence you know um, and you often see uh, motivational analogies about let's all row in the same direction um, but I, I do share that often with my team like I've got your back together we have this vision and mission and I believe everybody has untapped potential um, mm -hmm. to just go boom right um, you know whether it's with clients vendors right I try and seek out that mutual um uh, that mutual stride, as it were. And then it's also with with sharing respect as well. So influencing and helping them to understand that their role um, with respect, with their influence, you can actually, um, you can you can seek out and strive out a good outcome. Good, thank you. And Jim, what about you influencing as a leader? Yeah, so I think about it a couple of different ways. One is just my actions, doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. You know, teams- yeah. People in general are always kind of watching to see how you're reacting to certain situations and handling them. And by doing the right thing, you're definitely influencing these people. There's no question. And then I also equate you know, influencing with, with kind of coaching a fair amount mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis when we're, we're working with people and solving problems, because that's generally what we do all day is solve problems, right? We're, we're coaching our folks and, and our clients as well. Uh, and on how to get ultimately to kind of a desired outcome. And we talked earlier about authenticity and empathy, and I just want to come back to those because I think they're just so, so important. 
yes. with people, you know, getting to know them on a personal level, not just, hey, you're here to get a job done. You know, I've found it just makes all the difference in the world in being able to help, you know, influence people genuinely. Yes. And, and you're really referring back to when you spoke about your behavior and influencing people with your behavior, lead by example. That's our, one of our very first things that we talked about on this podcast, that you are the example. If you want to influence different behaviors, different outcomes on your team, you need to think about how you're showing up for them. What kind of example are you setting? So love all the things you said, both of you about empowerment and respect and being authentic and having empathy. All of those things are going to help you influence within your team. And then also across your leader peers as well, as you think about times when you do need to go to a leader peer or to somebody on the client side, all of those things, I think, resonate whatever the situation you, you find yourself in to influence. Okay, well, as leaders, you are influencing your teams, of course. You also have external influence, both at your client and out in the industry. Bhavna, tell us a little bit about the external influence from your perspective. Yeah, um, I spent some time mentoring uh, teenagers with um, less than conventional paths, um, providing them support, guidance, sharing insight. Um, to careers in, in technology, uh, my role, roles of my peers, of my team members, what I find is actually helping them to build that path um, and, and support that this is a, uh, a positive influence education, um, how it can help them uh, pick a, a trade or a specific career that they wanna go in um, and helping them have some ownership of that, um, helping them actually have a stake in making some of that decision but, but for the most part, I see it kind of help them create the world that they want to exist in supporting that. Good, that positive influence that you have, yeah. not just in our industry, but as you think about using your influence and using your background to help others, that's good, very good. Jim, what about you? Yeah, when I think of influencing externally and I think of clients versus kind of internally with associates and other leaders, you know, it can be a little bit of a challenge initially if you don't have a relationship and you don't have that trust and respect established yet. You have to really rely on ultimately your competency and information and data and facts really to support, you know, what it is you're trying to, to gain or, or the degree to which you're trying to influence somebody. And so, you know, once you have a little bit of a relationship with a client and, and you have that trust and respect, it can be much, much easier to, to ultimately, you know, influence them to where you're, where you're trying to go. You kind of have to prove it with your facts first before you have that trust built. So influence with the data and Bhavna, you mentioned that as well when you were speaking about the senior leader that you needed to influence, really thinking about what is going to influence this client or this senior leader or this person. And if you don't have the relationship yet, that data can help prove that you can be trusted and, uh, and can help you build that relationship where you can influence. Okay, Jim. So we think about negotiations, think about influence, how can leaders start to build this? You all have given some really good insight, but if you were to encourage leaders on growing these skills, what would you recommend? I would recommend studying people who you believe are really good at it. You know, I, mm. over, over my career, you know, I, I've read a lot of books and I, I've done a lot of research, but when I've, where I've grown the most 
is in identifying leaders that, that I believe are really good in a competency, mm-hmm. studying them and looking for opportunities to be exposed to them in these situations where I could actually learn and kind of pick up little tools and put them in my toolkit as I go. And that's what I found to be the most beneficial and valuable along the way. That's a great point. You can just watch them in action and take, take notes to yourself. Oh, I see how they handled that. Or when somebody pushed back, they, they didn't get flustered. They did this instead. Good. And I think also reaching out to somebody that, you know, is good at this and asking if they would even mentor you asking them if they, if you can be part of their next negotiation so that you can see them in action. Bob, no, what would you add? Yeah, I, I echo that, that, that being part of or just listening in to mm-hmm. negotiation, just actually just, you know, just listening, you don't have to say a word, just to hear the conversation or even pre- beforehand, understand what the plan is, what is the end goal, where's our end game. Um, and you can even practice by applying it to every facet of your life, right? Open your eyes yeah. to the fact that it is part of everyday life um, and, and be aware of it, like de- demystify it. Um, again, I think negotiation sometimes can feel like a dirty word. Uh, again, going back to that sleazy car salesman. Um, yeah. For sure, don't be a car salesman, right? But, but certainly <laughs> learn from others and, and watch them because we're, we could be influencing, but people are always influencing us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to be you know, cognizant and aware um, and then practice. You know, I think uh, I, I, I mentor a couple of people where I say, do this mirroring exercise before we speak, practice in front of the mirror, um, objectively, you know, have your plan, review it and see how your body language might draw me in things you can do. I'm super handsy. I just find it's a way for me to connect with people um, and, and kind of not be that salesman as I'm talking, um, but more than anything, like building that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and slowly with that connection, you'll find that you're, you're really all trying to get to some sort of similar end game. Um, and again, demystifying it helps you kind of get there faster and with a stronger, better outcome. Yeah. So it sounds like your advice says don't be a used car salesman. I think <laughs> if I were to sum it up. Nothing no. wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> don't be a sleazy used car salesman. That's right. That's good. <laughs> Good. Thank you so much for sharing your insight on negotiations and on influence and really helping our listeners start to build those skills, start to build the skills of listening, building the skills of that tactical empathy, thinking about how can I understand what this other person needs out of this negotiation to help them get what they want while at the same time getting what I need as well that preparation that you talked about, so important, so important in a lot of our leadership areas that we find ourselves in, whether that's coaching or feedback, making a client presentation, but certainly with negotiations, understanding what can you give, what can't you give? Thank you very much for that. Now it's time for the lightning round where we'll get to hear a little bit about both of you and get to know you a little bit better. Would love to hear about a little bit more about your career, but then we'll switch to hear just about you personally. First question is for Bhavna. Bhavna, what was your first paying job and what did you learn from it? I was um, a help desk tech at a London ah. law firm. I didn't know the first thing about fixing an issue with Word, forget printer. 
Um, but I figured out very quickly, neither, neither did they. <laughs> but what I did know was depending on how confident I was with my initial answer, influenced my outcome on how successful I was. It, mm. it didn't matter if I fixed the issue or if I got somebody else to help it, help me with it. But it was my response. It was that confidence. So when I would say, no worries, I've got this, leave it with me. Um, they would turn around and be like, okay, great. And in my mind, I was like, every issue is solvable and there's an answer. Um, and I would always, my, my slogan was consider it handled. And that was pre-Olivia Pope. I wanted to make sure everybody understands that. <laughs> oh, that's good. Consider it handled. That's, yeah. I think we can use that in a lot of our client relationships. So consider <laughs> it handled. And then I also love every problem can be solved. I love, that's a great mindset to have in yeah. all aspects of our career. Good. And I would say if you fail, fail fast, quick, get up and keep going. Right. I learned that yes. and that helped best job. Yes. Good. So my first paying job, I was 13 years old. I rode my bike <laughs> down to a barn near our house. I wasn't supposed to ride my bike on this road. And I fell in <laughs> love with a little three month old horse, a little filly. Mm. And she was $300. And so I had to go back and tell my parents that I had found this horse, but obviously I wasn't supposed to be going there in the first place, but I worked <laughs> courage up to, to tell them about this. And they said, okay, we'll buy you the $300 horse, but you have to find a way to pay for its care period, you know, monthly board, et cetera. So I talked to the owner of the barn and I, I worked out a deal where two hours a night after school, I would shovel manure to pay for her $90 a month board, which that's uh, I should tell you how far back this goes. It was $90 a month for a horse board. And so I did that and it, it worked out great. And I, I became, I became to appreciate the value of just work ethic. And if there's something mm. we really want working hard enough to, to get it and doing what it takes. Good. Doing whatever it takes, including mucking out stalls. Right. <laughs> Good <day>. work ethic. <laughs> exactly. All right, Jim, if you had a time machine and could go back to when you were first starting your career, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself, don't be afraid to take risks. Mm. You know, I've come to that place later in my career where, where I'm willing to take risks. But earlier in my career, I was, I was really hesitant to do that for fear of failing and looking stupid. And so I would say, take some risks and also expose yourself to leadership early. You know, I was always a little nervous early on, you know, to kind of be noticed. Yeah. And that's definitely something I would tell myself is just put yourself out there. It'll be fine you know, get out there and uh, get to know people. That's good. I would say that there is no such thing as work-life balance. Instead, <laughs> work-life uh, choice. Right? Ah. I would say make the tough choice when they matter. Make those choices. Decide when it's important to be there for your family versus not, you know, a recital, game night, date night. I mean, the list goes on, but if I knew that early on, I, I, I think I would have acted a lot differently and that it was actually my choice and not my leaders or my surroundings. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of young people, the eagerness, aggressiveness to get started, it can tip the scales in the other direction a bit more than not. That's really good advice. Remember that it's a choice and that it might not ever be balanced, but it can yeah. be integrated nicely and you are in control of that integration. It's your choice. Mm -hmm. Good. Bhavna, what's the best leadership advice that you've received and who gave it to you? So this was actually from my dad. 
Um, ah. I, he's my, my biggest mentor. Um, and he and he has told me my whole career, don't let fear keep you from taking risks. Always ask yourself, like, what's the worst that can happen? Mm. And, he's, and he always comes back to say, look, 90% of the time, the thing that could happen, it's not that bad. Like, yes. and, and he says, and he always says, Bhavna, run towards risk instead of away from it. And, and that's what I've been doing most of my careers, run towards, I run towards the problem. Give me the difficult thing to solve. I'm right there. You'll find me knocking at the door to saying, let me help. Um, and find out where you want to end your career and build a chart and path to get there. Um, or as like, you know, as, as he always said, like everything you want is on the other side of fear. The rest mm. is up to you. That's good. Good. So for this, so this goes all the way back to when I was five years out of school and I was at Amoco Oil Company and I was about to leave. So I was a database administrator and I was leaving to go to Quaker Oats and I had a really good boss. So it was extremely hard to leave. And I was standing outside his office and we were saying goodbye. And he said, Jim, take care of your people. And it just it didn't like quick click for me. You know, what do you what he really meant? You know, and and it wasn't for 10 more years that I would become a leader. It was 2004 that I became a leader for the first time. And then it finally clicked. You know, he saw leadership in me. Obviously, he thought I'd be a leader someday. And he said, take care of your people, which is my number one priority. You know, anybody who knows yeah. me knows that, you know, I'm all about our team. The team means the world to me. And so that's what I do. I take care of our people. Oh, that's so good. And I think that's such great advice because if you just can start with that, take care of the people, then your decision-making, how you're spending your time, how you're investing your energy is that's going to be your guiding light to help you figure out where do I need to, to spend energy today? Or what kind of decision do I need to make? Take care of your people and they're going to take care of you. Okay, good. Okay. Let's Switch gears from career and think about just you personally. Bhavna, are you a movie, TV, or book person? And what's your current favorite guilty pleasure? A hundred percent TV. I'm a Brit boxaholic. I, mm. I love murder, suspense, thriller, like solving the crime before the lead detective on the show does or the little, little cute old lady before she solves it. So I really, <laughs> I consider myself a sofa Sherlock. Um, I'm currently <laughs> watching this show called Wild Bill. Um, and it's actually got, you know, Rob Lowe in it in Lincolnshire, England, which isn't too far from where I live. Um, so I get to see some of my old stomping grounds. But at the same time, I mean, it's just, just the, the whole mystery. Um, need I say more? <laughs> like to solve those problems, even when you're being that sofa Sherlock, you're, you're solving the mysteries. Good. I tend to be TV. And I will say that uh, COVID over the last year and a half has definitely ramped that up. My wife and I have uh, binge watched quite a few series. I have to say way more than we ever did, <laughs> uh, you know, Breaking Bad and Dexter mm -hmm. and the Sopranos and, you know, kind of being a student of people. Those are kind of the shows that I, I kind of gravitate towards those ones that kind of you know, delve into people's psyches, I guess, if you will. Yes. And so that's, uh, that's definitely the guilty pleasure is, uh, is binge watching Netflix shows. Good. Well, Levi and I are huge Breaking Bad fans. So you're <laughs> we're right there with you. Best show ever. <laughs> yes, for sure. All right. Well, Jim, you've had a stressful day and you want to relax by either getting in your car or going to walk around the block and blasting some music. What are you listening to? Van Halen. 
So I, all, my, all my teen years were in the 80s. And so 80s rock, 80s music, of course, we all know it's the best decade ever. <laughs> We can all just admit it to ourselves. Twenty-three year old son, he says that all the time. Like it was like, oh my god, I wish I grew up in the eighties. He says it all the time. So yeah, it would be Van Halen and probably Van Halen Jump. All right, good one. Probably Rasputin by Boney M. Just the nostalgia of that song again, blasting in the early eighties. I think it was out in the seventies, maybe. Um, But it just reminds me of my childhood days. Like no worries, I kind of just let go of the day. I danced in public. Um, but it just reminds me of just growing up, dancing with my family, and, and music was what we had. Um, and it was our way of just connecting, relaxing, having fun, smiling. Um, it's got some of the greatest memories that song does. So, yeah. Okay. And I associate that song with We Just Dance. So I'm right there with you on the, the dancing on that song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bhavna, you have a week to do anything you want to do. What do you do? I would love to open up a pop-up restaurant in downtown Austin. I, oh. I love, love to cook. I love to feed people. It's therapy and meditation for me. Um, nice. Yes, yeah, it's been a dream. So that would be my one week. One week. Away. And what would you cook? Oh my God, hybrid. It'd be like a hybrid British. Um, I've got African, Northern African roots and some Indian heritage. Combine it with British and Texan flair. So I love doing these... Uh, combo tacos Mm. um and inside there are all types of herbs from around the world so it's not just your average bacon egg and cheese you could have things like mango cilantro um yeah fennel you know it's it's, yeah good blend but it'd be fun i think austin would be a great place to have one as well so yeah well maybe take a week off and see what you can do So one week I would go out to Las Vegas. There's a place called Spring Mountain Motor Course Facility, and they <laughs> teach you how to drive Corvettes really fast for a week. So it's a you know, professional instruction facility in the desert. They have a really cool course out there. So I think I would go spend a week doing that with my son, my 23-year-old son, who's also a car guy. That sounds fun. You told us earlier that you wish that you would have taken more risk when earlier in your you career. Go. So here you go. <laughs> Take some risk. Right. <laughs> uh jim fill in the blank i can't live without blank well family of course has to come first so we'll sit that aside okay gotta say that one because it's true uh horsepower anybody who knows me knows i'm kind of an adrenaline (laughs) junkie and uh pretty much anything with a motor um, i'm into as long as it's fast Uh, other than a motorcycle because i won't buy one of those because i'd kill myself for sure (laughs) Uh, yeah can't live without horsepower no horsepower going all the way back to when your parents bought you a horse when you were Actual 13. That's part- yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> that's when it right. started. <laughs> Good. Definitely the family and friends part. Um, but for me, it has to be music. Um, I just, my day revolves around it. Sometimes it's on in the background if I'm in a meeting. Um, I just feel like it sets the tone, no pun intended, um, to my mood (laughs) that day, how I start. And I absolutely have music with me everywhere I go. It's it's always playing. Um, That's how I get through going to a grocery store. I actually go now, but there's music going in my ears and just jiving, jamming, sometimes dancing when uh, people aren't watching or are watching. And maybe they have a good time on the CCTV camera. Being like, there she is. <laughs> Dancing down the aisles again. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. Well, final question for both of you. This Leader Talks podcast 
helps leaders get to know you or helps associates and leaders get to know you. It helps them understand those leader expectations and also just helps them continue their learning journey. I'm wondering if either of you have recently read a leadership book or a leadership podcast that you'd like to recommend. Jim, any recommendations for us? I do. Our very own Don Grauman, who's the head of financial services, wrote an awesome book just last year. It's called Strategic Pause, and I highly recommend it. I read it, and it's all about kind of getting your head up out of the weeds, out of past the noise, mm-hmm. kind of assess the landscape, and really focus on kind of the what and the how of leadership and putting together a personal leadership model. Good. And actually, Michael Hannon recommended that as well. So Uh, he did. So listeners, (laughs) no, that's good. That's good. All right. Bhavna, do you have a leadership book or podcast you would recommend? Um, I've read a few books this past year. Outliers was good. Never split the difference. I I think I always gravitate back to like The Art of War by by Sun Ju. I just think it remains relevant constantly. So I'll find myself opening up every three to four years. And it's and it's it's the strategy part mm-hmm. that, that I really like. It's not about a specific warfare tech, right? It's all about strategy and ta- tactics um, to guide you to a victorious outcome. And I find that that book always has kind of the strong foundation um, that that I'm always reminding myself of um, with new deals and functions. So it's it's like a staple on my bookshelf. Okay, that's good. And negotiations, the art of war makes sense. It goes goes together with that. Yes, good. Well, thank you both so, so much for being on the Leader Talks podcast for this episode. And we hope that you will come back and join us again sometime soon. Thanks so much. Thank Thank you. you. And that's a wrap on this episode of Leader Talks at Axiom. Hope you enjoyed hearing from Jim and Bhavna about their experience with negotiations and that you learned some things to help you in your next negotiation. Really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Remember, we know that no leader is perfect, but whatever is going on in your life, whatever your negotiations look like, today is a great day to be a great leader. Thanks so much and join us again soon.